The Defense Department is preparing for a new era of cyber warfare driven by artificial intelligence. The Army's Cyber Center of Excellence is already using AI defensively to watch for cyber threats around the clock. Center officials see AI, though, as the key to faster decision-making both on and off the battlefield. For an update, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the Center's Director of Information Advantage, Colonel John Agnello. An easy place to use AI is continuous monitoring. So what we're actually kind of looking at right now is Army Cyber has brought in various contract organizations to come and show what their technologies are and how can they use those technologies for continuous monitoring. So continuous monitoring to help defend cyber hygiene is it's low threat. So how can we use AI where it's a little more simple and you don't have a major risk or threat associated with it, that's the first way I think we're really looking at using it holistically for cyber defense. I just wanted to follow up first on your point about just AI as a tool for enabling decision-making. Can you give me some examples of how AI is a useful tool in the toolbox for uh, arriving at those decisions better, faster, cheaper? You actually you, you hit the nail on the head. It's better, faster, cheaper. So really the way we're kind of looking at it is the concept of if every piece of information that's on the battlefield is its own individual node, and we take every one of those individual nodes and they interact with each other, Uh, and they affect each other, they all merge into the concept of some type of decision space where you've got speed and and accuracy, and you really want to make sure that, you know, we want our data to be faster and more accurate than our adversaries so we can have some type of information advantage versus our adversaries. And and really what we're looking at is how how do you use AI for that? And I think that, you know, that type of neural network is really where we're going with it. One other point to focus on here, we hear from DOD across the enterprise that AI readiness is a point of contention, a point of concern. You know, I think one of the AI readiness goals, at least for DOD across the board, is AI readiness by 2025, 2027, I think is another milestone out there. As far as your particular corner of things over at Army Cyber Center of Excellence, you know, what does AI readiness mean to you and what are the key milestones to get there? AI readiness. So let's say, how do you use it to be more successful. You know, we talked about using it in the information space against social media and proactively versus reactively. I think when we talk about overall AI readiness that, you know, the Defense Department and the U.S. government writ large is all come up, everyone has their AI task forces to try and find what those new technologies are and how we can apply it. I think really the bottom line is how do we apply it today and where do we need to apply it to be successful? And you said something that usually comes up in these conversations, how as Army deploys AI, human in the loop is always very important and just, I think, a grounding principle for any future use of AI. Can you speak a little bit more about the value of that human in the loop and why it's so essential that there's a human operator uh, making these decisions at the end of the day? I said in the talk about Skynet, people see, people automatically think when you think AI, you think Skynet, oh, world's coming to an end. Really, the bottom line is, is that, you know, we use AI to do those more menial tasks which allow a human to actually be that button pusher you know whatever that button pushing may be it may be something from defending a network to sending a tweet to dropping a bomb and it could be anything in from that full spectrum there ai is really helps us make a decision but still the human has to be the one the commander has to be the one to make that overall decision 
Switching gears here a little bit, as far as the search for talent when it comes to AI, cyber talent is one of those things that we always hear is always in demand. And I, I think if you go one degree further here, AI is also a place where the demand for talent, the demand for that expertise is pretty acute as far as getting people on board or just even recognizing the people who have that AI aptitude. What is uh, Center of Excellence looking to do there? Oh, that's a great question. So really what we're kind of doing is we started, we, they started a new warrant officer curriculum and officer curriculum talking data engineers, data managers and data engineers So and data scientists. So, you know, we want to look at understanding that we are a data centric army. So how do you find individuals that are tech savvy to understand that data, apply that data and be the engineers to actually write that, write those scripts, write those algorithms to apply it. So we have fully embraced it. We actually have built new MOSs and uh, specialties for warrant officers to specifically look at AI and data science. One thing that came up in this conversation with this panel is it comes up pretty often when we talk about AI, but it's the information, the disinformation side of things. More broadly, AI trustworthiness, I think, is kind of a thing that people discuss when they talk about AI for quite some time. In terms of making sure that these AI tools are reliable, that they're producing accurate results when they're being used, what is the Cyber Center of Excellence looking to do there to make sure that these tools are accurate when they need to be? I think that goes back to data-centric. We, we talked about on the panel that you, you really need to have some type of supervisor learning. So the idea of as we continue to use a data set and that data set is what makes those algorithms come to the answer that you want, you have to continue to nurture and you continue to supervise that data and, and determine that you have the right data, accurate data, that can continue to modify what that solution is. So really the bottom line is, is just supervising the data. You know, someone used the example of saying it's a baby, you have to continue to mold and build that baby and and make sure that it, it comes to fruition. So I think that's really the bottom line. So at the end of the day, it seems like some basic blocking and tackling with the data, making sure it's of a reliable you know, maturity and that it's able to uh, train the AI in a way that's, that makes it trustworthy in the first place. Yeah, I mean, obviously you have to continue to train it. you got to continue to uh, modify it, make sure that it's accurate, make sure it's up to date, and make sure that you have, you're asking the right questions too. I think that's one of the biggest problems we lose in data science is what exactly is the requirement and what's the question you want to ask that data. That allows you to apply that algorithm, that um, analytic, to actually allow that AI to kind of solve that, the answer for you. Cyber is a realm where you guys are always staying on top of the next thing over the horizon. But, you know, how do you get everyone on board to understand the value of AI, just both the threat side of AI and the opportunity side of AI and and get everyone to recognize just what a pivotal kind of period we are with this emerging technology? Bottom line is that it's not going away. AI is here. It's continued to get refined. Those type of technologies, we want everyone to embrace it use the technology. One of the big things we really got to look at is how do you educate seniors of what AI is and how you can use it? Because where we, I think we may fail a little bit here and there is that at least in the military, senior leaders that, you know, you've been doing, you've been doing this for 20 or 30 years, you, you, you follow your gut instinct. And, you know, if you can have something provide you a 
a good recommendation, you don't have to follow it, but at least it gives you a quicker option to make a decision. That's really, I think, the way we want to look at that. Colonel John Agnello, Director of the Information Advantage at the Army's Cyber Center of Excellence, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important, so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. 
And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, 
I realized that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made. And I realized in my own sense, I wasn't listening to very different opinions. And I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer. And I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going? Um, Because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role, And over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, 
that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're uh, having known you now for seven or eight years um, and worked alongside you. Uh, Your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.